was also on the Mexico trip, and my almost three-year-old was not very happy that my husband was gone for the last 10 days. Um, so this week was not super fun for us at home. Um, that almost three-year-old stage is, it's new, it's different, and it's a lot. Um, so we are very excited for Daddy to come home tomorrow, and I'm very excited to hear the stories and the testimonies of Mexico that will make what this week was worth it back home. Um, Yeah, he's really excited and definitely misses his daddy. The day that it was raining on Wednesday, they had to take a bit of a break. And my husband found some Wi-Fi and FaceTimed me and I just started sobbing. And he was like, oh no, what is happening back home? I was like, I just miss you. It's okay. I'm pregnant. It's not my fault. I can't stop. Right. So I'm very excited for them to come back. But yes, despite the rain and it was very rainy. Um, They were able to finish all five houses, which is really exciting and pretty incredible. And conversations that they've been having with the youth have been very encouraging. And um, yeah, if you've ever been around for like a baptism Sunday at SunWest, like the story of Mexico comes up time and time again. It is interwoven into our history and our story and our faith. And yeah, I anticipate the fruit from this trip and I'm really excited to hear about that. Um, So this Sunday is Palm Sunday. If you've been around church, if you've grown up in church, maybe you kind of already know this story. Maybe you have memories of when you were a kid, you know, going down the aisles, waving the palm branches, singing a song, right? It's usually like a pretty fun, exciting Sunday that gets ready for Easter weekend. So maybe if you're like me, you've heard this story of this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem before. Maybe you've heard it a lot. And maybe you think you already kind of know what there is to know about the story. But as I was studying the four gospels, the the passages that account what happened in this event, there's so many things that I learned that like, I don't know if I just was never listening. Maybe that's what it is. Um, Or just like never really sank in. But I learned a lot studying um, for this week. And so whether you've heard this story before, like me, and maybe you just haven't quite had it sink in, or you've never heard it, before, we're going to really dive into what's happening on that first Palm Sunday for the first portion of our morning together. And then we're going to talk about how it prepares us to look towards Easter. So Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 12 all have their own similar but slightly unique telling of their experience of Jesus's triumphal entry coming into Jerusalem for a celebration of Passover 2,000 years ago. We're going to read Matthew's account, and we'll kind of have a few of the other ones interwoven as we talk about it today. So you can turn your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew 21, and we'll be reading verse 1 to 11. Matthew 21, verse 1 to 11. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. 
Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So this account of what we now call Palm Sunday, we can see that Jesus, along with his disciples and this whole crowd, are going on this annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. There were masses of Jews making their way back to the holy city to celebrate the Passover festival. So to give us a picture of just how many people were gathering in the city. So there was a historical account that was taken just 30 years after this Palm Sunday. And a Roman governor had to take a census of the lambs that were slain in Jerusalem for Passover. And it was recorded that the number was not far off from 250,000 lambs. Okay, so that's a lot of lambs. It was the Passover regulation that you had to have a minimum of 10 people per lamb. That means that there were like over 2 million people there crowding their way into Jerusalem for this celebration. This many people would not fit into this holy city. The towns surrounding Jerusalem would have been packed full of people. People would have been reuniting with friends and family. There would have been this surge of energy and laughter and food and music, maybe a little bit of arguing, you know, getting together with family. And it just, it would have been all around. There would have been this buzz. Millions of people. And early readers would have known this. They would have personally experienced this annual pilgrimage. And then they would have been aware of that kind of climate that Jesus was entering into and walking into. But now thousands of years later, we kind of can lose that context. We might not be able to feel that surge of energy in the same way. But for example, if I said, I took the train downtown on the last Friday night of Stampede. That means something. If you are from around here, if you've been on that train, that's all I need to say for you to be able to imagine what it looks like, how people are acting, maybe what it smells like, right? All I have to say is I took the train downtown on the last night of Stampede and you get it. Saying that Jesus and his disciples were heading to Jerusalem for Passover meant something. There's an assumed understanding of what that would feel like, what it would be like. And understanding the busyness and the energy of it, that's just going to be the first piece of lots of things that I want to look at, several things that people who would have been there and experienced this would have just kind of known and understood and got, but might kind of be lost on us if we're just reading it today in our context. So we're going to go a little further into what this looks like. And I've read the words before that Jesus and his disciples were traveling up to Jerusalem. Maybe this is something I wasn't listening. I don't know. But I never realized like, how literally up it is to get to Jerusalem. So to go from Jericho, which was where they were coming from, to Jerusalem, it's actually like a long, hard climb. Like it's over, Jericho is over 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem, which is only like a dozen or so miles away, is over 2,500 feet above sea level. So it goes through this hot, dry desert, all the way up to the top of Mount Olives. And then they get to this first real vegetation vegetation, and the first site of Jerusalem itself. So you can see on the map here where Bethphage and Bethany are. And that's where Jesus told the disciples to stop and get the donkey to go ahead and go get it for him. And then he rode it up from there to Jerusalem. Now, if I didn't know that there was more to the donkey, I think the guy was just tired because like, it's a really long way. <laughs> it's a hike. Now, for some of you, you're like, oh, sweet, going on a hike with a bunch of people. This sounds awesome. Like, that's great for you. That does not sound like my dream day, but that's okay. But the hill going up to Jerusalem added to the anticipation of getting to move towards where God dwelt 
and where their faith took a physical presence like nowhere else. And I mean, if I think about it, if I was going on a hike to be in like this crowd of people who are all singing the whole way up, like best case scenario for a hike, so it's okay. So they got near Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus gets a donkey. And then as they start going closer to the top of the city, more stuff starts happening. Matt talked about this two weeks ago. He talked about how when there's an entry of a king into a city called the parousia, or there's another name for it, the apentesis, it's a meeting of a king as he enters a city and they welcome the king in. This was something that happened from time to time. But there are a few significant parallels to this entry of Jesus entering that happened before this day that I want to look at today. First, the laying down of the branches, right? This is usually the thing that we know about Palm Sunday, the waving of the branches. When they were doing that, they would be recalling other celebrations of the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. And these branches were used in ritual processions. And we can see a few other counts happening in the book of Maccabees. So the book of Maccabees isn't included in our Bibles, but it's known to account in between Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, and then the 400 years before Matthew and John the Baptist, the next prophet. So in the book of Maccabees, in between that time, we can read an account in 1 Maccabees 13 about a time when there was fighting and there was famine in Jerusalem, and then the people had regained their fortress in the city. And it says that on the 23rd day in the second month, the year 171, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches and harps and cymbals and stringed instruments with hymns and songs, and a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. And they celebrated by waving the branches. And another account we can read in 2 Maccabees 10.7 tells us what a time Jerusalem had been taken over again. There was foreign gods that had built, they'd built altars to foreign gods there, all sorts of stuff. They'd regained the city. And so they had ivy wands, beautiful branches, and palm leaves, and offered hymns to the one who'd made the purification of his own temple possible. These were two significant, well-known things that happened in Jewish history where God helped his people regain their position against their enemies. And they celebrated the defeat of that enemy, the cleansing of the temple with the laying down of branches for their king. It wasn't just a coincidence that they started doing this. Clearly, there were some serious and specific expectations of who the crowds thought Jesus was what they thought he was doing as they were making this journey into the holy city to celebrate. There's a second significant parallel, and that's the calling out of Hosanna. So this song from the Psalms that they were singing, it's actually one that they would have sang every year on this pilgrimage, regularly as they were going up to celebrate Passover and remember how God saved his people from Egypt from their oppression against the Egyptians. And that's what they were going to celebrate. And so this word Hosanna, which we read some translations say, praise God, it was originally a plea for assistance. It meant help us, save now. And then it kind of became a more general cry for celebration or praise or something like that. But here, when they're calling out Hosanna, they're specifically welcoming Jesus as the messianic ruler, as the son of David, the one that they were waiting for coming in God's name. And they weren't just calling him any king. They were calling him the king. So in verse eight in Matthew, this quote of the Psalms that the people were singing out, it was a cry for deliverance. 
It was a cry for deliverance from the long-awaited Messiah. And that's what they were calling out to Jesus. To enter the city and announce that they would have victory over Rome, over their oppression, over these hard days, just like God did on that first Passover, just like they'd been waiting for all these years. They were expecting Jesus to finally bring victory for God's people. The third significant parallel that we're going to look at is the gesture of laying out of the coats, which would have recalled a specific moment in a specific time when Jehu was anointed as king. We can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 9, if we read verses 12 and 13. Jehu told them, God said to me, this is what the Lord says, or the prophet said to him, this is what the Lord says. I have anointed you to be king over Israel. Then they quickly spread out their coats on the bare steps and blew the ram's horn, shouting, Jehu is king. So Jehu becomes king. They lay out their coats for him. They do this procession. If you keep reading in 2 Kings, um, <laughs> he's going to enter a city and they ask if Jehu's coming in peace. And he goes, uh, what do you know about peace? Fall behind me. That's his response. And then it gets like very graphic and very violent after that. I was reading this in my kitchen preparing and my friend was also working at my kitchen. And I was like, oh, what? Uh, and she was like, what is going on? I was like, this is a very graphic story. Like it is like Jehu kills Joram and Azahiah, the death of Jezebel. Jehu kills Ahab's family. Jehu, Jehu kills the priests of Baal. Like it's very graphic, very violent. And this is what the people were recalling as Jesus entered Jerusalem. A king violently avenging them, cleansing the temple, freeing them from their oppressors. They were expecting Jesus to be a violent conquering king. And Jesus' disciples, I think, would have felt this same desire maybe even more than the others in the crowd because they'd been there through every single thing that Jesus had done so far, up close and personal. And they must have been thinking like, surely this is what it's all been for. Finally, everything they'd been hoping for, waiting for, what they gave up and dropped their lives to follow Jesus for, it was about to happen. But Jesus had already communicated something about what he was doing about his victorious entry to his disciples and to the crowd by way of the donkey. It wasn't just because he was tired and lazy, like I would have been trying to get to the top of Jerusalem. People have lots of comments about this whole donkey thing of like, was it a divine appointment? Did Jesus set it up ahead of time? I don't know. People have all sorts of opinions about how the donkey happened. But the donkey happened, and we do know that by conveying to the animal's owner that the Lord needs it. When they said that, the disciples actually enacted a prerogative to the ruling monarch, which means they were impressing into official duty the property of private citizens. It's like saying the king needs it. It was a donkey for a king. In the Middle East, a donkey could be a noble animal. And when a king rode into a city on a donkey, it meant that he was coming in peace. Jehu did not come in on a donkey. He came in on a flaming chariot thing. It was, there was horses. It was a whole thing. He killed a lot of people. It was different. Jesus spent much of his ministry not quite revealing his true identity. But here in this procession, he was finally claiming his position as king. And he was allowing for those calls of Hosanna, for the branches and the coats to be laid down, for the people in the crowds to be identifying him as a king. 
And when Jesus claimed to be king, he claimed to be a king of peace. He showed them that he didn't come to destroy, but to love. Not to condemn them, but to help them. And Jesus took this position of peace, knowing full well that he was entering a hostile city. It was busy. There was people everywhere. It was a charged crowd. These people had been waiting hundreds of years since that last prophet Malachi, even longer since the promise was made to David in 2 Samuel that the king of kings would come from his descendants and establish this eternal kingdom for God's people. And any reasonable person in Jesus's position, knowing what kind of city he was entering into, would have probably actually entered quietly if he went into Jerusalem at all, maybe at night and went straight to shelter. But Jesus didn't do that. And it causes what Matthew refers to as an uproar. And that word uproar that he uses is the same verb that he uses elsewhere in the book to describe storms or earthquakes. So when people ask who this man is, their answer identifies Jesus in the terms of his Galilean roots and also as a prophet, which is actually kind of a dangerous statement because Jerusalem kind of has a reputation of killing God's prophets. To call Jesus a prophet in this massive buzzing crowd is to signal in advance what was about to happen, even if they didn't actually know that's what they were doing. So Jesus entered Jerusalem, but it's actually only in Mark's account that we have an extra day added to this timeline than the others of what happens next. So Matthew and Luke follow the entry and Jesus goes into the temple and maybe you've heard the story before and he starts knocking over the market tables and all of this is happening. And it kind of seems like he entered into Jerusalem and that's what he went to do. But Mark actually adds an extra day. And I think the reason that they didn't include it, Matthew and Luke, is because it's pretty anticlimactic, honestly. Um, if you read Mark 11, verse 11, it says, Jesus came to Jerusalem. There was all the oh, exciting. Went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left. Because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Jesus had this grand entry. And then it just led to like a brief walk through the temple. And then he left with his disciples back down the hill to Bethany. Not all the way down the hill, partway, right? Then probably the next day, they went back up the hill, back into Jerusalem, and then Jesus did the stuff in the temple. That's like a whole other sermon. So we're not going to get to that today. Um, we're going to stick with this first entry. But this little exit, entry and exit is worth noting. And I wonder if Mark included it because it actually tells us something really important about the 12 disciples. With all these hopes, these gestures, these pleas, these clear expectations on Jesus and the risk that it was assuming by so clearly stating those expectations, they were still with him. It must have been pretty plain to them by this point that Jesus could die for what he was about to do, especially in this crowd, especially at this time. Sometimes we can get really critical of the disciples in those last days. We think of the Garden of Gethsemane when they just kept falling asleep. And Jesus was like, I just want you to pray with me. And they couldn't even stay awake. Peter denies him three times. But here, we actually see their faith. We see them standing by Jesus through this entry. They follow the signals of Jesus being the king. 
They stopped in the temple full of anticipation of what was about to happen. And then they left with him. They had no idea what was happening. We know they didn't. In John's account, he specifically says this in verse 16. The disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. So the disciples were mixed up in the crowd. They were ready and they were expectant for what was to come. They had no idea what was really going to happen. They didn't realize it until afterwards that Jesus had actually already explicitly told them on more than one occasion. We can see it in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke. Three times they all wrote down in hindsight, oh yeah, Jesus did tell us about this. Jesus predicts his death. Jesus again predicts his death. Jesus again predicts his death. These all happened before they went into Jerusalem. Jesus straight up told them, let's read it. And from Mark, it says, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where the son of man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. He said this to them three times before they went into Jerusalem, straight up. This is exactly what's going to happen. And we know it goes Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. But they still had no idea. They were so filled with their own expectations. They couldn't see what Jesus had plainly told them. And this is where I want to draw us into the story of Palm Sunday. We've clearly seen there was a lot going on. They had a lot of expectations for God, for who Jesus would be, for what their lives would look like if he was the king and they welcomed him as their king. And even though the prophets had been clear and Jesus had been clear that it wasn't going to be what they were thinking, they still couldn't see past their own expectations, past their own situations and their own desires. Jesus could have entered the town militantly. He could have gone up on a horse. He could have met those expectations as a political king. But if he did that, he actually would have never been able to fulfill his mission. Jesus did respond to their call to save them. Hosanna. But, and she right puts it this way, precisely because Jesus says yes to their desires at the deepest level, he will have to say no or wait to the desires they are conscious of and express. Read that again. Precisely because Jesus says yes to their desires at the deepest level, he will have to say no or wait to the desires they are conscious of and express. Now we get this. We can see this 2,000 years later, right? Obviously Jesus couldn't enter as a political king, as a war horse and kill people. Like what? But I'm not sure that we, or at least I, have all that much better of a perspective of my own situations than the crowds or the disciples did when they were calling out to Jesus. How many of us have called out to God, Hosanna, save me. God, step in. Save me from what's happening in my life right now. Fulfill your promises. Be God, be king over my situation. Step in, do something. 
and we call out to him with deep expectations. And this is the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning. In our calling out and our deepest desires and hopes and needs, what expectations do we have of God? What expectations do we have of God? We can see so clearly in the story of Palm Sunday that in order for Jesus to say yes to their deepest and truest needs and longings, he needed to say no or wait to their current seen needs and felt longings. And they weren't bad needs or longings. They were really real. They were legitimate. They were being oppressed by Rome. But they held their needs and their hopes with expectations on God that were actually less than what God's best was for them. So when we call out to God, Hosanna, save now. Save me because I need that job, because I need to get that acceptance letter, because I need those test results to come back clear, because I need this person to survive this, to be healed from this. I need to be healed. And there seems to be no other possible answer from our good God than for him to say yes, exactly how you are expecting. Are we willing to let go of what we think and might expect is best? to allow for what God's yes might be instead. Because on Palm Sunday, God's yes to all that they were calling out for, to save them from, all they were asking for meant that Jesus had to die. It meant that Jesus' disciples were now in danger for following him, that lots of them, even after he rose from the dead, ended up being martyred. God's best was actually more dangerous. It was harder. And his yes often made less sense than the expectations that they had. And in the moment, it could have just felt like, how could this possibly ever be good? The only way that Jesus' disciples would have been able to keep following him through the risks and the uncertainty that that came with was because they trusted in God's eternal yes that was beyond their current situation and trials and pain. And T. Wright says it this way. He has a really great commentary on a lot of the um, entries, these triumphal entries, and he says it this way. As we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus, the question presses upon us. Are we going along for the trip in hope that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? The long, dusty pilgrim way of our lives gives most of us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. Are we ready not only to spread our cloaks on the road in front of him to do this showy and flamboyant thing, but also now to follow him into trouble, controversy, trial, and death? What does it look like to have faith even through the pain and the nose or the weights, including some very painful ones that make no possible sense to us on this side of God's not yet kingdom. That God has a greater good planned for you than you are even asking for or can imagine. What does it look like to trust the bigger picture of redemption beyond our very real needs and our very real expectations for right now and trust that God always comes through, even if it's not today?
and even if it's not how we expected. We're going to close with a song called Yes and Amen. Because it's a song not of just getting what we expect from God. It's a song of faith. When we allow God to be king and trust his eternal yes, that's what we're going to sing about. Songs like this are pretty easy to sing in good times, right? How do we keep singing these songs that we sing every week? Goodness of God, all my life you've been faithful. All my life you've been so, so good. With every breath that I'm able, I will sing of the goodness of God. How do we say he's faithful through generations, so why would he feel now? He won't. He won't. He won't fail. How do we sing faithful you are, faithful forever you will be, faithful you are, all your promises are yes and amen. How do we keep singing these when it feels like God isn't keeping his promises? When it feels like how could there be any good that comes from this situation? They're songs of faith. They're songs that bring us back to not allowing our comparatively small, short-sighted, though very real expectations to dictate God's eternal promise to save and to redeem. This is why we believe what we've got here, this isn't it. God is still answering yes to what you are asking of him, but you may or may not get to see that yes on this side of eternity in order for him to truly say yes to what you are asking of him, to truly save. He had to say no to some of their expectations on Palm Sunday in order to truly save them. God has not left us. He has not given up. He's still fighting against the wrongs and the disappointments and the injustices and the losses that we endure in this life. And he will redeem every single one of them. That's what we get to celebrate at Easter. God's yes to death for his yes to give us abundant life. He is faithful. Let's sing the song of faith together. I invite you to stand if you're able. A lot easier to sing when things are going good. Before we leave today, I want to clarify something that I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it is wrong to pray and expectantly hope for God to move. I'm actually saying the opposite. I think Palm Sunday is saying the opposite. I think it teaches us that we can and should expectantly hope for God to move and that all his promises are yes and amen. We can always expect God to save. Call out to God. Ask him to intervene. Bring him into anything, everything in your life and expect that he wants to and he will be there. He'll never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He will never abandon you. He will redeem every cry, every hope, every need, every loss in deeper, fuller, more ways than you are even asking him to. More than even perhaps you want it. Jesus is king. We can call to him, Hosanna, knowing with full confidence that Jesus has saved. Jesus is saving. Jesus will save. Next weekend, we get to celebrate Easter, following Jesus into his harder yes, giving his own life so that he can give us his deeper yes. 
more than we can ask or imagine, a life that we were actually created to live shalom with him. We don't need to do this alone. We have prayer teams, prayer teams, you can come forward now. If you have something that you wanna just ask to help clarity on what God's yes is or to give up those expectations, they're ready to pray with you. If you're not here on site, or if it's during the week, you didn't feel comfortable coming up, you can email prayer at sunwishchurch.com. They can email back and forth with you, pray with you, set up virtual meetings, in-person meetings. We have groups so we don't have to do this alone. We can help bear one another's burdens. And we gather weekly because how easy do we forget? How easy do we fill in the blanks and the waiting? with our own expectation. Let's lean on each other. Let's call out to the Holy Spirit to help us trust and have faith in God's yes, which may look exactly how we're hoping and exactly how we're calling out to him and asking for, or it could be totally different. In every situation, let's hold on to the hope of just how far, how deep, how wide our God can, is, and will always save us. We can always expect God to save. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would meet us where we have filled in the blanks, where we have been left in pain and have had expectations on you that are looking different than what we thought. Holy Spirit, would you give us faith to trust that all your promises are yes and amen, that you haven't abandoned us and you have a good, good plan. You are so good and you will save us. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you save us in the here and now that we get to live and experience and we anticipate how you will save in ways we can't even imagine in eternity. Help our unbelief, Jesus. All your promises are yes and amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Everyone, you can have a great week. Thank mm-hmm. you.